I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Joanne O'Leary, one of the editors at the paper, and I'm speaking today with Patricia Lockwood, a contributing editor at the LRB, who has a piece in the latest issue on Vladimir Nabokov. It's a review of Think, Speak, Write, a book of his uncollected essays, reviews, interviews and letters to the editor, published in the UK by Penguin. And the piece touches on everything from the complete biography of Nabokov that lurks behind the pages of this book to his monomaniacal control over the interview process, to what it's like to read Dalita as a teenage girl and feel photographically seen. Jusha, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. I thought we could begin by discussing how this piece came into being. So you were in the middle of writing this essay about Nabokov when you realised that you'd contracted COVID. And there's a footnote in the piece where you describe spending a week trying to read Ben Sinister that horribly dystopian novel, realising you had the virus and then devoting the next three weeks to working on what you call a delirious bingo card, which tries to gather together all of Nabokov's themes in one place. Uh, This is reproduced on page 16 of the latest issue of the paper and no verbal description can do it justice. So do check it out. But this will to classification is a very Nabokovian move. I mean, it could have come out of pale fire. So do you think you were being possessed by the great man in some way? What was going on? I know that I was definitely possessed by him at that time. And yes, so how it came into being was it really, um, I should have started working on it last year, right? And I was just too lazy. Yeah. So I waited until the moment that I clearly had COVID to begin, which is a really, really nice thing for him. I was looking back through my books because I do take physical notes, sort of in the margins and things like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, there is going to be such good stuff in here. I am going to be able to delve back into my mind as I was reading these books. And I actually realized that all of the important ones I read when I had COVID. So Lolita, uh, Benin, um, the lectures on literature and the lectures on Russian literature particularly uh, were when I was at my my, my most lunatic, I would say, um, So I was under the impression that I had done a lot of this reading previously when I was absolutely normal. And then I went back and and realized that that was not the case at all. However, I did have the idea for the bingo card, I think, before I was ill. And this was because if you really, if you look at the lectures and you look at things like letters to Vera and things like that, he's always doing this. He's always drawing little diagrams in his letters to Vera. He is always... um, 
particularly when she was in the sanatorium trying to gain weight, <laughs> whatever was going on there, um, he would, you know, he would do crosswords for her. He would make little puzzles. Um, he did drawings where you had to find other things in the drawing. That one's horrible. I urge you to check it out if you haven't seen it. So I think I thought that there was this, um, there was this thing that I could do that was very Nabokovian that he liked, that was really a, a playful thing that he did. But then, of course, I was possessed by the demon of the man himself, and I just kept going deeper and deeper into it and uh, writing things that absolutely made no sense. One of the squares for a while, I think, just read, Little girl, your neck stinks. Oh, and there were like 14 H's on the O. And I thought that this was like the funniest thing I'd ever written. I was like, wait till they see this line about the little girl's neck stinking. And so, you know, cut to maybe, what, five months later, I think I was able to restart work in September. Um, So I looked at all these notes and I'm just like, well, that's fucking useless. Really great work there. And then it's like, well, why not include it as well? You know, it's, it's actually part of the piece. You cannot think of a greater nightmare than trying to write this assessment, this overview of Nabokov when you're not mentally up to snuff. It is an absolute nightmare. <laughs> I hope that that comes through in the piece. Did it feel that way? Did you feel like you were Yeah, I mean, well? you, meant, you, you mentioned the kind of pleasure of reading him when you're in your full faculties and then yes. how strange it is when you're not. And how, how odd it is to read a novel like Ben Sinister now, um, as you say in the piece, borders do close overnight. The secret police are once more on the move, and you're in bed with a fever. So that that must have been quite strange. And I mean, that's kind of you touch on. I mean, his politics too, right? That's kind of this oh, weird police yes. state. This like strange place where we find ourselves. Um, yeah, and so I think it's important to note, you know, in Letters to Vera, he talks about himself as being like a man who's scared of the post office, right? I'm also a person who's scared of the post office. We're, we're talking about a person who doesn't know how to go mail a letter, who then is, is writing these entire books about bureaucracy. Now, for the most part, I don't want to read a, a claustrophobic book about bureaucracy. But when you pick up something like Ben Sinister and you're just like, oh my God, they are just crossing this bridge back and forth forever. I'm in hell. We're all in hell, right? I'm completely in hell. I don't think that there probably could have been a worse novel to be working on. At that time, I might not have even realized that I had COVID if I hadn't tried to read Ben Sinister. It's nice to think that it's a kind of has some sort of diagnostic value. It did. I would urge anyone who's not sure whether they might have COVID right now to just pick up Ben Sinister, give it a little gander, and see how you feel. (laughs) I was reading rereading the piece this morning, and at the beginning, you make this joke about every writer needing a pedant. Um, and you quote the interview from Strong Opinions, um, the 1973 precursory to this latest book of ephemera, um, in which an interviewer tries to force Nabokov to admit that a sentence about a character pairing his fingernails was inspired by Joyce. Um, <laughs> and later in the piece, you say Nabokov and I are hardly a match made in heaven. But do you think there's an influence from him in your own work? There's something about the tactility of his prose and yours and the sort of thicket of clauses and... And that makes me want to say yes. Yes. No, absolutely. Um, I would identify it that way, actually. When I was working on Pre-Steady, I had a panic at the 11th hour, pretty much when the book was due. And I looked at my manuscript and I thought, your fucking adjectives stink. They reek. They're not good enough. And so what I did was I I got like the 24-ounce Red Bull, you know, like cold as it could be, went out on the screen porch 
And I opened Speak Memory, and I literally went through it hunting adjectives, just picking them up off the ground like little gems, and then just inserting them in pre-study. I'm like, I'm putting you here. <laughs> You're being set here. You go here. Um, I mean, I've read him when I was very, very young. I think you start out with something like Lolita because you do hear this hyperbole about it that is, you know, the only convincing love story of our century, that it is just the, the greatest novel of the 20th century. Um, and also that it's like like a sexy book is, is the thing that we hear. There have been many people on Twitter um, who sort of have gone through the, the Lolita covers and really underline the fact that all of them are basically saying, isn't this kid hot? Don't you want to fuck this kid too? Like, here's her lips, here's her saddle shoes, like, check it out. So as a person who didn't have a whole lot of access to the classics, Lolita was was definitely one that I had early on that meant something different to me. I mean, when you're reading it when you're quite young, you don't, you're not thinking in terms of creepiness. I think for me in particular, I have tremendous reverence for writers. I think that in part, the the sort of way that I write about them is a way to push against that reverence. So I think that I possibly have the reputation of writing these takedowns, when in reality, what I feel is this this cherishing for the writer, um, that also that every word that they lay down is law. Um, I don't think that I read actually with a critical mind. I read thinking that, you know, this is what this person said, and that's the end of it. Uh, so when I was reading Lolita as a young person, and also a person with a very sort of photographic sense of the visual, yes, that, that was a person who was forming my sensibility. But then it, it's also true, I think, that I'm a synesthetic writer as well. So when I was addressing Updike, I think I referred to him as the little synesthete uh, of literature, and Nabokov is the large. And I think that that is true. And it's only you feel it very strongly if you're a person who also sees things that way. So I'm tremendously, tremendously visual, not just in what I picture as I read, but in my experience of the words themselves are like pictures to me. So I felt a, a great kinship with him there, I think. And I would absolutely, absolutely claim him as one of my influences. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people I've discussed a piece with are really, every women I've discussed a piece with feel exactly what you described, this half-ashamed attachment to Lilita um, that women of our generation have. Um, and the idea that the surrounding pervert can be somehow discarded, but you can keep his eye. Yeah. That's yeah. really exactly how I experience reading it too. And you particularly feel that way when you're young because you do want, I mean, she is the sort of like pivot on which the novel turns. And this visual experience of her is that pivot. The whole novel is just turning around her. That's how you feel. And you think, what if someone could feel this way about me? Obviously, that's you grow up and you're like, whoa, that's insane. No, you don't want anyone to feel that way about you. But as a child who has no importance in the world and who is not looked upon, that becomes important somehow. I actually went down a rabbit hole of um, sexy TV movies the other day because I've run out of normal movies to watch in quarantine. I'm not sure that any of these would have made it over the pond, but there were a bunch of movies that like Alicia Silverstone filmed when she was a teenager, like The Babysitter, The Crush, things like that. And I was like, Jason, we have to go back and watch some of these like sexy Alicia Silverstone movies. And you go back, of course, and they're literally the creepiest things you can possibly imagine. And Jason says, you know, what are like middle-aged dads watching these? And I was like, no, it was like me and my friends were going to the video store and we were renting the movies about like, you know, like fucking the dad of the kid that you're babysitting. 
That's crazy, but it's also, I, I think it's a fairly universal experience. This is like something that I did. This is something that my friends did. Somehow Lolita, again, one of the greatest novels of the 20th century, was caught up in that <laughs> impulse. I think it's benefited from that impulse. Um, I don't think that it has been discarded, and I don't think it will be discarded in the same way that a lot of the other creepy stuff has been. Yeah, and you, you say kind of later on, it's a commonplace now. We say Lolita is the greatest novel ever written about advertising, not about love. But in a way, of course, those two things are completely connected because, yeah. you know, an infant has a shelf life in the way all yeah. of these things being advertised have a shelf life. So it's sort of, as you grow older and reread it, you the, she herself becomes a metaphor for something else, for what it's like Absolutely. to be an American. Yes. And I think it's a dodge as well, because then you can say, oh, it's about something else, but it's also a book about coming on a kid's leg, you know? Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. like it, it's, it's simultaneously about that as well. So it's been a hard thing to talk about because people do hold it very closely. Um, and I think a lot of people do read it very early, I think, because it holds such a prominent position in the canon, uh, sort of in the, the great pantheon of letters. Um, so people read it when they're young and they ne- haven't necessarily... You know, they, they do still have that ability to discard the surrounding pervert, which I think is interesting and which I still retain when I read. I mean, I read some of the most offensive, like you can't even imagine. It's just like a garbage pile over here. I'm doing all of it, you know? I like this thing too about the kind of proleptic nostalgia, which I totally get when I'm reading it. So that the idea that you're looking at something and already realizing that you're going to miss it. Um, and that was yeah. something he was trying to do and he was writing the novel. Is that something you feel kind of in, that comes true in the other books too? I mean, I guess nostalgia is always there. It's there in all of his, in all of his writing. It's it's there in speak memory. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the writers who actually has nostalgia as an illness in the original sense of the term. You know, he's like he's going to die of that. Yeah, he did die of it probably in in Switzerland. And to me, Benin is really the nostalgic one for me. There's something about it because he's almost writing about his own self, his own professorship. I'm so sorry. Those are my cats. So they're like chasing back and forth right now. Um, so I can start. Hey, guys, do you want to do you want to not act like demons? Is that a possibility for you? Whenever the microphone comes out, they're like really sexually attracted to the microphone and it drives them absolutely crazy and they just go nuts for it. Yeah, because they wouldn't let you record your 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 reading of the Corona Diary, right? They Yes, they were sort of just like musking their butts all over it as as I was attempting to do that, yes. Um, I do think that, that he is an extremely nostalgic writer. Um, but I also think that he's sort of writing about this, this period of the country, and this is post-war and everything is very shiny. Uh, and he's very obsessed with this idea of like the barbarism that overtook American culture in the form of advertising. So we see that in the lectures too, that he would have these like visuals of the, these like barbaric advertisements. Um, And, you know, if, if it's a seduction in the sense that it's presenting us this figure of Lolita describing her, like lavishing its eye over her, it's also doing that about the country. That is really the commonplace of it, that, that it's about America and that Humbert is this old creepy hobbled Europe who's, you know, like limping along and, and, and fondling her in, you know, this this shiny new American car, right? I love the detail about your father-in-law wanting to stay in the Free Breakfast Inn <laughs> simply because it's called the Free Breakfast Inn, although all yeah. the other hotels also offer free breakfast, you say. Yeah. There's only one Free Breakfast Inn. Um, yeah. And that's what it means to be an American. That seemed to me 
just write on. That's great. I think it really gets at something. Yes, RIP to my father-in-law, Floyd, who was always producing wonderful details like that. Um, but yeah, I think that, that Jason told me that when we were in Florida as we were passing something that was called a, a similar sort of name, like the free breakfast. And, it's like, why? and I was like, why would you even like call the motel that? He's like, oh, no, if we went on vacation, we were stopping at the free breakfast inn because they can't back out of that. It's called the free breakfast inn. They can't yank it away from you at the last minute. There's this promise inherent in the name, the free breakfast inn. <laughs> And Humbert kind of mentions that at one point in the novel, doesn't he? That for Lolita, the word is simply the thing. So she sees, you know, ice cold drinks and she's experiencing the ice coldness through the word rather than the thing itself. Yes. And there's sort of these comparisons of Humbert as, you know, this, this, this ape-like figure, this, this caveman, almost like in the platonic cave, you know, experiencing the image as at the same time he is, um, you know, gently criticizing Lolita for her susceptibility to advertising when obviously Humbert is the one who is susceptible to the original image, the image of the person. Um, I think it was also a great time in America. I'm not sure if this is true in the UK at all, but we had this very um, sort of themed sense of motels and all of the motels left over from that time are really called things like, you know, it's like the Knights Inn, like the Enchanted Hunters, things like that. So I think that he was playing with that a little bit as something that was uniquely American. Like we felt if you stayed overnight in this hotel that we were going to theme your experience. <laughs> like if you stay here, you know, you're one of the Knights of the Round Table. Like who wants to experience this this sort of theming on their cross-country road trip, well, an American does. That's literally the definition of being an American. <laughs> I think he's he's also so interested in in this idea of ele- elevating the low brow to through the alchemy yes. of his style, right? And I was thinking a lot about you know his definition of pornography. So he says, you know, pornography is essentially it's got nothing to do with the subject matter. It's a, it's a technical question, right? And this kind of comes up in the piece where you talk about these strange moments where something that seems very straightforward becomes quite strange and mysterious and it's almost like you enter the interval before you go to sleep. Um, mm-hmm. And because he's doing that, it, it in the sentences slip away from you in some kind of unexplained way that you find hard mm-hmm. to, you know, parse, that that, that, that for him would, whatever he was writing about, that would mean that he wasn't writing a pornographic novel that for him it was the style is matter. And it, it does kind of work in that way. I mean, you have these wonderful mm-hmm. descriptions of, of space and time collapsing in the you do. in a clause. And you talk about it in Penin particularly. But yeah, I wondered if you could say something about that. I think there are a couple things that he does. I think that he does in certain books drug us. Um, and I don't know that, that I don't know that Lolita is really one of the books where he drugs us as much. I think that is maybe a little bit more in the bureaucratic um, secret police, uh, secret country, you know, that the, the borders that we have to, to cross in the night. I think that it happens a little more there. But I think in, in Lolita and Panin in particular, he does the chess move that I talk about. So in his wonderful lectures, and I really, really cannot speak too highly of the lectures, and I don't think it's just because my brain was absolutely inflamed from coronavirus as I was reading, but they were so wonderful to experience for the first time, and sometimes even for books that I had not read. Um, so he didn't initially, in his lectures on literature, he didn't um, 
when he set his his class syllabus for Cornell, I believe, he didn't include any female writers. And it was Edmund Wilson, actually, who urged him to include Mansfield Park. So he was not an Austin person. Um, but he does he does do this this really rather wonderful lecture about Mansfield Park. And he talks about how Austin can just move us in the final clause to a different place emotionally that she sets up a sentence and then she does this this technical trick really where she just like shifts us to another place emotionally. So he refers to her move as the knight's move. And I think that he adopted something like this for himself that I refer to in the pieces as the queen's move. So he can move anywhere on the board. So he does this through language. I think in the scene setting in certain of the, the more Ben Sinister type novels, I think he accomplishes it through atmosphere. But I think in novels like Lolita and Pnein, um, the later American ones, he does this sort of thing like with the language itself. He moves us through the language. And sort of off the chessboard. So yes, what, what's you're completely lifted off. Yeah, because uh, so one of the other things that comes across quite strongly in your piece is you know, he sets up these brain teasers, these puzzles for us, but that's not actually mm-hmm. the point of it. And we know, even though we're chasing down all of the references and the echoes and, you know, stuffing the novel with post-its and so on, we know that that's not really the aim of the game, that there's something else going on. And it's those moments where he moves off the board um, right. that make it so sort of exhilarating and you get that, you know, tingle between your shoulder blades and that's kind yes. of why we read him. It's what he told people specifically to read literature for. It's what he always told his students. He said, this is, you know, you're not reading just with your brain. You are reading for that tingle. You're reading to feel your hackles lift on your scalp. Like you are reading for a physical reaction. If I have a student that experiences a physical reaction like that as they read, they have what it takes basically to engage with literature, to understand literature. And he accomplishes these things. Um and it's it's something very interesting to just come across as you're doing a cold reading because you will be going along and you think you're reading a traditional novel. And as I say in the piece, I think that he doesn't give answers. I think sometimes he he lays these things out so that you feel like you can investigate your way through them. And this is, again, why people can lose their academic lives to this man, right? So he makes you feel that you you follow him, that eventually you're going to be able to crack the case and figure it all out. And then he just vanishes, poof, and you're up in the air, and you've received the elevation, you've received the the reward, and that's, I think, what confers this immortality on him, because they're not just novels that exist on the same plane at all times. They don't stay on the human ground, they don't stay on the, the soil of a particular country. He takes you up into the air eventually. Yeah, and that's so interesting um, when you, you pit that against the control and how controlled he is as a writer and the ways in which he controls Absolutely. his own persona and how you kind of try to reconcile those things. I mean, I was thinking about, you know, obviously the interviews being scripted and his insistence that, you know, or, you know, the famous a Paris Review interview where he goes to, Herbert Gold goes to Montreux and he's presented with this envelope and Nabokov has written the interview and yep. the questions <laughs> and says, you know, right. Here, here's your interview, you can go home now. Um, and... I was wondering what it was like to kind of experience that sort of 
sensibility for you because you're quite comfortable with being interviewed where you seem Mm -hmm. to be and you know you're a Twitter persona you're undaunted by putting yourself out there and so this level of control freakery was that something that you found kind of odd or hard to kind of fathom and get your head around no I absolutely sympathize with it and um this is I think really the what I liked so much about Think, Write, Speak is you you go from the very beginning and he is quite open in the earlier interviews. And if you think about it, an interview is tremendously vulnerable. You know, I think that I, in my personal writing life, am a person who's really closed off like a snail and I get into the public sphere and I'm talking to someone on, you know, like a park bench or something and I just like explode my slime and my guts all over them. And that's fine. Like I'm capable of doing both things. Not everyone is capable of doing both things. So I felt great sympathy, but I also felt the temptation um, really of, of making yourself invulnerable because so much of this, you you do address the question of what comes from his life, what comes from his past, you know, what, like, what role do, do these traumas, um, the loss of his father, the loss of his brother um, in a concentration camp, like, what role do those play in his work? It seems clear that he didn't really want to talk about that. And do you know the, the famous story of him uh, turning over the page of his brother's diary when he was 15 to his tutor? And then his tutor gave it to his father, and it made it clear that that Sergei was homosexual. And the theory is that after that, the private life was not something that he spoke of as much, or it became more closed off, more walled off, which I think makes a lot of sense. But it's also, I mean, some of these interviews were the absolute dog shit, stupidest things you have ever read in your life. These questions, they almost approach in their offensiveness, the sort of questions that were like put to lady writers of the mid-century, you know, it was like all Freud. It was all personal. It was all, are you a pervert, sir? And so you, I mean, you kind of see why I think after Lolita that it happens, but I, it might have happened anyway. And I think it's because, I mean, if you do feel if you understand that it was a vulnerability that he felt in himself, I think you're much more sympathetic to it. Um, and I think it's easy to read, you know, an interview with someone who's like, again, an exploding slime blob like me and be like, she has no problem with these things. This is easy for her. But the fact is that when you get home, you're like, Oh God, what did I say? I could have said anything. As soon as I open my mouth, just like all of this spills out and I have no control over it. And there has to be some way, there has to be some way of corralling that. Right. Um, if you feel that way, if you just feel yourself like this, like spreading pool of guts, like how do you keep that in? You know, how do you, how do you exercise some control over the process? And of course he becomes the, the triple reinforced art roach, right. Who can't be killed. And that's one way of responding to it. But I think very, very few writers achieved the level of fame that he had, too. So we don't have a whole lot of other case studies for, like, how do people react to this kind of thing? I think if we <laughs> if we had someone who remained, like, you know, a celebrity um, up to the last minute and was capable of giving these tender, disarming, charming interviews, I don't know. I, don't, I, I like that less well, I think, than someone who's really figured out, you know, like what he wants to say and how he wants to say it. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think so much of it is about his early life being vulnerable to, you know, the yes. turns of 20th century history. And, you know, the, later on in life, you know, him and Vera wanting to keep all of their money in government bonds, the idea that anything yeah. can be taken away from you at any point. 
And so yeah. this kind of will to control has so much to do with the biography. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, he just comes across as a massive knob. A massive, massive knob. It is fun, though. It's it's really fun. I highly recommend, again, Strong Opinions. Strong Opinions is absolutely great. Um, and even, you know, there's so much charm, too, in the Albert Atfull Jr. interview that I talk about. It is so funny the way he fields these questions. And also the fact that he had, like, tremendous affection. You know, he did call him my pedant. You know, this is, this is my guy. There's a really great quote, I believe, in the... Um, I think that it's the Joyce lecture where he says that every new type of writer evolves a new type of reader. Every genius produces a legion of young insomniacs. So he produced his own. I think he recognized that. I think that in a, his own way, he did respect that kind of a person. I don't think that he respected the people, you know, who, who showed up his, at his door, like asking him how much of a pervert he was, you know. I think it might make any of us kind of a knob to be asked that so consistently over a period of years. <laughs> I like what you say, that there's no richer text than a pervert. Um, yeah. And the idea that in some way, it's almost a disappointment that he wasn't. And there really isn't any evidence that, you know, and and, and where does yeah. that come from? And how could you have written in this way? Because it's not just Lita, of course, you, you have an Nada, you have oh. a... Yeah, it's everywhere. Yes, yes, yes. No, it's it's all over the place. And it really is like such a constant thing. Even something like laughter in the dark. I mean, all of these these grubby, sort of like semi-prostitute, you know, transient women who filter in and out. And like the, the main thing that he really hammers home about them is that they're dumb and they're dirty. <laughs> it's like the two things. They're dumb and they're dirty and they're young. Like that's the, that's the main thing. But what's the quote that he... He liked young girls, but he didn't like little girls. So I, I feel like it, the people thought that if we got away from that, if he didn't like little girls, we were home free, right? We didn't really have to address the other part. But again, Letters to Vera, I think, goes a very long way um, to kind of balancing, correcting some idea of him as the pervert, because he's the swain in these letters, particularly in the really early ones. I'm not joking about the pet names he uses. They are extensive. If you go through, you count probably a thousand of them. Um, and what is reiterated again and again is that he is writing her all of these letters, and she almost never writes back. She almost never responds. And when he gets a letter, he's really, really excited. But otherwise, he's just like absolutely pouring, pouring this text out to her. Uh, and it's, you know, like pussykins, kittykins. It's absolutely unbelievable. The translators did a marvelous job, like, uh, uh, with some of these, some of these little pet names. But I think that, is where he's the most likable in those in those early letters. And what really you do think, well, I, I think he's just kind of a normal guy. But it is disappointing. You really want him to be a huge freak. But, you know, being a freak takes up a lot of time and it takes up a lot of energy that I think, you know, for him was directed elsewhere. Like, I don't, you can't lead a whole secret pervert life and then also be the guy who's writing these books, maybe. And then it's interesting to put that against, you know, Vera as, as secretary, as this kind of shadow character later mm -hmm. later in his life. And you kind of, you, you feel sorry for her. She's defensive of him. You feel like she's slightly used. But maybe that's not necessarily the case. You know, her her role, she was so subsumed, I suppose, into into the fabric of, of his, his fame and notoriety and... And, and all of that. And I mean, she comes up in the piece when you make the joke, you imagine um, a movie version of one of these interviews and, and you know, she mm -hmm. comes in with the tea and, and has one line. And I mean, what, what, what is your sense of her from 
from all of this reading that you that you've done. I mean, she's a strange one, right? She's hard to it's, figure it, out. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, she's she's a code to be cracked. But then I also understand that too, in the same way that the the version of me who read Lolita when I was thirteen probably had more of a sense of, oh God, if a great man came into my life, absolutely, I would lick his stamps for him, or I would be the helpmeet to his genius. So I simultaneously had this sense of myself. I knew I was a megalomaniac. I believed that I was a genius. Then there was also this other part where it was like, what if, you know, you had met someone like Nabokov, you know, in your late teens, early 20s, or something like that? Like, what would you have done? to help him along. I think there's also something interesting. I mean, we do talk about him as being the man who's afraid of the post office, that he didn't fold his own umbrella, that Vera licked his stamps for him, uh, the Jenny Awful lines. And it's like, there's also this sense that, you know, if someone doesn't know how to fold an umbrella, I don't think that they're doing it to be annoying. I think that there's a better sense now that some of this extraordinary absent-mindedness is probably like, again, not total neurotypicality, you know, and I think that people do that for their partners, you know, like they do, uh, they hold memories for each other, they do things for each other um, that that their partners can't do for themselves. So it was nice to see a bunch of um, a, a bunch of people were linking that uh, Stacy Schiff piece that ran in the New Yorker that I think was an excerpt um, of her 1997, was it? The biography, the biography. of her, yeah. Yeah, so that, that was very nice because I did feel that I didn't get the chance, you know, when you're doing this massive overview, like you do want to talk about everything, um, but you don't get to. You actually don't get to talk about everything. But I, so I, th- I think I do have a sense of, I have sympathy for him in the way that I don't know how to do these things either, that I'm the sort of like absent-minded professor who in fact has a number of things done for me by my partner. Uh, so maybe it, it doesn't behoove me to look at Vera too closely, you know, be in what does it say about me if I look at Vera so closely? There's also a really great line in Pneen that goes, um, it was the world that was absent-minded and it was Pneen whose business it was to set it straight. Uh, which I always find probably a description of him as well, right? That like things are wrong in the world, um, that that we, the absent-minded professors are setting them straight, which again, is like a very self-aggrandizing way to look at yourself here. Um, but a certain amount of that megalomania, a certain amount of that self-aggrandizement, I think has been historically an ingredient of the writing personality, um, has even like helped people do this, has made them capable of taking up this life, which is really a sort of lunatic life, a mad life. Um, what is it for you that Penin seems to be your book, right? It's your beloved. It is my book, yeah, that's my book. I wasn't expecting that that novel to be the Trisha novel, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. And I, do, I don't know why that is, but, you know, he and, and it's interesting because Nabokov, he, he pairs them, you know, this was the kind of more respectable New Yorker novel alongside what mm-hmm. he calls it, it's monstrous sibling, which was the latest. Right. <laughs> and I, I don't know, it's like, you know, well, not that I, part of me expected you to, to, to love the monstrous sibling more than the mm. the kind of more sanitised New Yorkery um, sort of novel, but I was interested in in what it was about that book that really got you. I I love the character, and I feel um, that he really hits a point of condensation there that I I very much love. I mean, you can't say that parts of Lolita aren't really overwritten. You know? <laughs> like that's that's obviously it's part of it. It's part of the project. Uh, but there's just something about Panin that it formally really draws me in, and also I think that. If you look at those 
the sort of um, 50s New Yorker piece, I think that more often they were experimental than people they were more experimental than people realized at times. I think if you go back and you look at like John Cheever, if you even, you know, some of the Updike things like we're, so I'm thinking of maybe a post-war period from like the forties through the sixties, um, where I think a little bit more formal experimentation was happening than was actually given credit, uh, the, the, the New Yorker was actually given credit for. So I, I think that actually sort of experimental things happen in it. I mean, I think that it does contain, his treatment of the Holocaust. Um, I think that in talking about Mira, I think that he is talking about Sergei a little bit. I think he's talking about Vera there too. I mean, what happens if, if they stay in Europe, um, you know, while the Nazis are rising to power. So I, there's just so much in it there for me, but I also find the lines so elegant and the affection that is bestowed on Pnein. So, so real. Um, and then it becomes very complicated if you think, you know, that he is writing about himself. What is this like affection that he's bestowing on his own limitations, on his own self, on this, this professor version of him, um, that is maybe more like what he actually was than, than what we think in the other novels, right? Like you always think of, of these, like Humbert is a stand in for Nabokov. You just sort of accomplish that transposition a little bit in your head as you're as you're reading I think or I always do but then to see him as this this sort of this bumbler I think is what I like but really it is the writing and the the set piece of the party is is one of the great things in literature to me um but yeah that's that's the one that I just feel the love for always yeah, you quote the bit, the, the Joan Lemons bit. Mm-hmm. And then you're, and, and you know, probably quite unfairly cast yourself as her. A little bit, yeah. I like to. <laughs> to downplay it. I mean, don't you think what he's trying to express in nearly all of his novels is the fantastic recurrence of certain situations? It is very funny. It's what we're doing, you know? And I disclaim throughout the piece, obviously, that I'm his pedant, but of course I'm his pedant. Like, what do we think that I'm doing here? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading with him late into the night. I'm, I'm loving him, really. I have all these notes um, throughout where I was, I was thinking about what particularly I was trying to do, like why I read so deeply into these people when I'm, when I'm attempting to write these essays, because I could just review the book. I could literally just pick up the book and review it, and I never do. I always want to go all the way back. And I have a note that just reads, I guess it's my mission to read so deeply into a writer that I give him a new butthole. And that was when I had coronavirus. But I was like, I think it's also quite accurate, actually. You know, So this coexists, this desire to read very, very deeply into someone, while at the same time making very superficial jokes at times about them, right? I'm, I'm always, I'm always sort of amazed by the amount of work that you do, you put into these pieces. I mean, you do read why. everything. It's, it's insane. It's, it's insane, yeah. but amazing. Just kill me, like put a pistol to my head and just like shoot me. I don't know why I do it. I think it is this fear that you will miss something. And there's also this fear that I am reading not from a grounding of theory or from a university grounding, but from just my personal reactions to these novels. So 
I talked about not really reading critically before, but what I do read with is what he talks about, which is the tremendous physical responsiveness. So as you go along and you do feel the chills, and I have chills even just talking about feeling the chills is how responsive I am to these novels. Uh, you're going through and you're doing that, and that is the literature to me. If I miss one of those moments, if I miss one of those moves that suddenly illuminates the whole game, that wins the game for me... Well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to miss that. It could be lurking somewhere. You know, what happens if I don't read his his lecture on Anna Karenina? Like what, ha- which he would be very upset that I called her Anna Karenina, not Anna Karenina. <laughs> but what happens if I don't read that and what I need is somewhere in that text? So for me, it is that panic. It's it's that feeling that, you know, you woke up and you're, you've missed 10,000 hours of school. You're not ready for the test, that you need to ready yourself for this somehow. But also, I just, I don't know. I just really like going in, just disappearing into that vortex. And I think he is so rewarding to read in that way. My very brief experience of teaching him to undergraduates, it's just how, quite how much you get out of reading him. It's, it's sort of yeah. extraordinary. Just small things, I, I, you know, talking about, you know, the kind of goosebumps, that bit where Humbert finds the three-year-old bobby pin of Lilita in, in his car, yeah. which I think is, you know, mm-hmm. one of like the saddest moments in all literature. And yeah. you just think, you know, it, it's a tiny thing and, you know, most people might not have noticed it, but I feel like everybody has one of those. And with Nabokov, there are so many to choose from. Yes. It's so rich. No, he lives in those details. He really does. And it can become overwhelming. And it does, you know, sometimes in places. I do love speak memory. So my other book besides Benin is, is speak memory, probably. But I also read that that quite young as well. Um, I was really obsessed, I think, with his synesthesia. Because I, as I said, I, I have a really similar thing when I read. And I think I even wrote... Oh my god! I wrote a poem about his synesthesia when I was like seventeen. I'm t- I'm gonna find it. You've got to find it. You've got to find it. It can it can go. I believe go I actually. Oh, I do one of those. He was obsessed with those games where you replace one letter of a word until it was another word. Mm. And I wrote a poem where I did that at the end. And it talks all about his color synesthesia. It is very very embarrassing. Um, but yeah, so so very early on, I was just like. It wasn't just the sense that that he lived in the details, but that there were this opulence, you know, that I think comes from his childhood, from those paperweights on the mantelpiece, from from these things that are gone, but that are still his inheritance. Yeah, and he talks, he talks, I can't remember where, but he talks somewhere about the trifles of life being where, you know, Mm -hmm. almost a kind of religious experience in these, these kinds of tiny things, these tiny details. And to be able to think in yeah. that way and experience things in that way um, is just sort of mind-blowing to me. So something like, you know, I suck on a bibelot in front of Nanny is a joke, but it's also like a real thing. You know, this is like a real thing that this guy was doing. This is something I respond to and it's something that I also do. So, yeah, I mean, Nabokov is a tremendously personal writer, I think, for the, the people who hold him close. Talking about speak memory, obviously you're best known for Priest Daddy. It's a memoir. It was your first book. You've just finished writing writing your novel. Mm-hmm. What was that like? I mean, how how different was it? Specifically the writing of the novel. Well well just I guess I, I was thinking, you know, you've got you've got the narrative, don't you? When you when you the, the narrative structure, that's what, you know, memoir affords you. It does. In a way. And you know, you can't kind of zoom off the the chessboard in this in the same way and come back. That's true. Something is determined for for you. The game is has to be played in a, in a particular way, um, and that's not the experience of 
writing fiction, I imagine. Very much not the experience of it. No, yeah, pre-study. Pre-study was very interesting because it's not something I would have chosen to write on my own. It literally was something that was like, I need to save our lives with a book advance here, like pretty quickly or shit's going to go down. (laughs) But it also offered that structure. It was like, if I move back in with my parents for eight months, bam, bitch, like here's the structure of the book. This is how it's going to look. But there also, I think, is that chapter in pre-study voice where I do give myself a free space. Right. Is that a thing in bingo? Who knows? I've clearly never played it. But that was my free space. I was like, this is where I get to lift off and do what I want stylistically and formally. And when it comes to writing a novel, the whole thing's a free space. You have to figure out what you're going to do with it. So I had this this concept where I really did want to write about the experience of living on the internet, you know, of being part of this communal brain. So the lecture that I gave at the British Museum for you guys was drawn from the novel. You were like, hey, do you want to give a lecture at the British Museum? And I was like, yeah, but I'm lazy. So I'm just going to take all the internet bits out of my novel and I'm going to read them out loud at the British Museum. And that's what I did. But I wanted the other half of it to take place very much outside the internet. And I didn't know exactly what that was going to be. Um, And so it it was different. But again, for me, like a lot of this, the question of genre for me is, is just almost silly or it's beside the point. Like, I don't really care about it. Other people get to decide about it. I just write what I write and, you know, other people can have the conversations later. So I, there are like a lot of things obviously that, that are true or partially true or that come from life. I mean, it probably could be described as a novel from life in the Sheila Hetty formulation. Um, but yeah, so, so you did have to figure out what it was going to be and what it was going to look like, but it was also never going to be a traditional novel. I was never going to get my characters either up or down the stairs. That was never going to happen. I was like, I don't know what the parts of a house are called. I don't know. You know, I don't know how anything works. I can't go to the post office. How am I supposed to write a novel? But someone like the book up actually shows you. It's like, he doesn't necessarily know how to do those things either. You can still write these books. You can write weird books that are somewhat actually about your inability to do those things, to exist in the real world, the world of monstrous bureaucracy, you know? And is it is it frightening? Is it frightening? Does the idea of putting the novel out there intimidate you? Or was it scarier to put pre-study out there because it's manifestly or more manifestly your life? It's, it's an interesting question. They both were fairly scary. But I also didn't... I knew that my father would not read pre-study. Really? So, he has, has he still yeah, no, not? He's, no, he still hasn't read it. He, again, he lives in his created reality where he doesn't admit other people's experiences. Um, So no, he would never, ever read it. He would never, if, you know, if we end up making the show of it, I don't think that he would ever watch that either. He would just brag about it to other people. He's a very, very interesting man. That's why we wrote a book about him. But yeah, so that was really scary in the sense that while I was writing it, I really had to balance these questions of, you know, like is this my territory, right? So a lot of it, you're talking about the Catholic Church, so you have to address huge issues. You have to address, like, sex abuse scandals. You have to, you know, address, like, the role of women in the church. All of these things that are very, very big. Um, so, so there was a little bit of fear in that. But with this, this novel seems actually much more personal to me. So I am... I do feel more vulnerable um, in the completely uncarapaced art rich sense about this one going out into the world. This this feels a little bit harder. 
But, you know, maybe maybe it's like that every time. This period is excruciating. I don't know every single time it's excruciating, and I guess you forget in between times that you're able to do it again. Probably like childbirth or something, right? Like, the pain is so incredible that you have to forget it. Yeah. Well, they say that, you know, but I'm kind of like, no, I remember it all, and I'm never fucking doing it again. No, I remember it. it. I remember all of that. (laughs) You're still pretty close, though. Maybe in, like, a year you're not going to remember it, and then you're going to be like, let's do it again. I mean, I just can't imagine it. But, like, you know, people say, you know, you forget the trauma. You'll just just think, oh, my God, you know, it's totally worth it. I'm like, no. I thought I was going to die. (laughs) My oxygen levels dropped. I'm never forgetting this. And I remember, like, having the experience during childbirth being like, there's no fucking way I'm ever going to forget this. So maybe that was was part of it. But... Yeah, I mean, I guess it's and and there and there's always the fear when you write anything like, well, if I can never do it again, I guess there's that too, right? So that's true. Because again, I'm operating at this point, like even in releasing this piece, I do consider this and the coronavirus piece to have been sort of like rehabilitative pieces. Like someone is is watching me sort of like get back up after I had a little stroke, you know. So in a sense, it's me remembering how to do it again. It's it's me remembering how to like claw my way back to this this architecture. Um, even just the basic reading part of it feels very different. It feels like the meaning is not entirely yoked to the the visual experience of the words. So all of that still feels very, very strange. And I have had moments over the past six months or so where I'm like, what if, what if it's over? Like what if coronavirus has killed part of my brain? And (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) In so many words. Yeah. I mean, I probably sound fairly normal to you. This is probably just something in my own head, right? Yeah. No, you, you sound, you sound on track. Yeah. I sound on track to you. That's good. That's very, very reassuring. But yeah, I do have the thing where I'm like, oh my God, what if I can't remember, you know, during my podcast interview about my Nabokov piece, what if I can't remember his brother's name? Like, it's it's just this this panic where it feels like previously you had this tremendous store of knowledge that you could draw on up to the point that you got dementia at the age of 86 or something, right? But now it's like, oh no, I have it now. <laughs> like, it came for me early. <laughs> and you were writing it, you described in one of the emails to us, you were writing this piece and writing your Corona diary, and they were neck and neck. So I guess you kind of couldn't extricate one from the other. So it's quite odd to imagine you flitting between. Absolutely. And I was like, do I even want to still acknowledge that I'm, you know, experiencing symptoms? First of all, I feel like this is a novel virus. We don't know what it's doing to people. We don't know what the long-term effects are. Clearly, a lot of people are having my same experience. I don't think that it would be honest if I just went forward pretending like all of these things have come back and that they're very easy for me now again. um, I think that I should provide some sort of record of of what has happened in the wake of this. But the Nabokov uh, piece didn't really become possible fully again until I did a course of steroids in September. So up to that point, I couldn't really type. I had like numbness in both of my arms and I, I couldn't really use them. So if I typed, like I would type the Corona piece and then my hands would go numb for like several days afterwards. So after I did, did the steroid course, those got a little bit better. So I'm like able to type without pain now, which is very nice. But yeah, I mean, you don't fully talk about the level of just sort of like temporary disability in the wake of it. But everyone I've talked to who was sick in March is like, oh yeah, I mean, I used to be able to to do all these things in terms of exercise and now I like can walk around the block at best or, you know, I still... I email with some people who had it and like the emails do not sound quite right. You know, I'm like, I, and that was probably true of me. I can go back and I, I look at things that I wrote to people and I'm like, you sound 
a hundred percent crazy. Like this is not like what is this doing to people? You know. So in that in that sense, it's very interesting, and I'm happy to provide a, a case study. I've been asked to ask you if you've ever eaten a butterfly or insect of any kind. Oh my god, that's so interesting. I mean, I have by accident they've flown into my mouth, but that's different. That's involuntary. That's involuntary. I've never. You've never tasted. I, I was not. I was never one of the insect torturers. Um, I mean, if if a beautiful butterfly had landed on my hand, I don't think it would have been my impulse to pop it in my mouth. Yeah, that's what's so strange about the... the oh, I've had a tequila worm. Does oh. that count? I mean, I think we've all had a tequila worm, so I'm going to say we've no. We've all had a tequila worm. Now, the tequila worm, I was it was interesting. I did it on Thanksgiving because I wanted to, you know, mark the occasion. And I did feel like I felt the little feet crawling down the inside of my, you know, like my my swallow hole. What is it called, Joanne? What's the swallow hole called? Down my throat. Yeah, so I was like, oh, it's it's like a Disney insect where it's just like marching down my throat to my stomach. So I did have that experience, but I don't know. I think with him, it was like, I'm just fucking living among these butterflies. I'm catching them all day. I'm, you know, I'm ethering them. I'm pinning them. I'm doing all these things. Eventually, I guess I'm going to eat them. The question is, did he ever, like, do anything sexual with one? I know. Would it be possible? I mean, maybe well, that's where you would have to hold the... it very close to your area and just let the wing gently brush against the tip. Yeah. I think that's the only way it could possibly work. It's human. I'm now. I now have such a strong visual image of that. I'm right. Quite disturbed, this is my gift, like, baby. This is your gift. <laughs> and you can sort of like the so the little glitter of the feathers comes off right on the glands. I think too. Oh wow! Do you want that image yeah. as well? Did yeah. you want that? Part? I, yeah. This is going to be with me all night. Yeah. As I, <laughs> as I attempt to feed my baby at four a.m., I'm yeah. going to be like, it's yeah. Good. You got to think about something. Now, do you listen to like audiobooks or anything like that? Or? Yeah. I mean. A lot of the time I'm just like talking to her about how, yeah. how unfair the experience of having to do this is, which I feel oh, like probably that's some sort of Irish implanting that's some deep trauma. Um, yes. But I do feel like it's, it's very personally unfair. Yeah, it is. Just what I got myself into. Fuck it. You got yourself into it. Yeah, you don't get to complain. To your baby at 4am. The other question is, what do you eat for lunch? I, I'm weird. I don't eat until about three o'clock. So I don't know that I have something either called a breakfast or a lunch. I've always found that I just think better if I don't eat. I have that too. I feel like I can't, I work better when I'm hungry. I don't know what that says. Yeah. And I think when you actually do have the big meal, then all your blood that would otherwise be going to your brain is like trying to digest or something like that. So I'm like, no, screw it. I'm not even doing that. And then at like three PM. I'll have a bowl of Gardettos. I don't. Do you have that snack? It's a great. No. What? Great is, what, what, what is it? It's one of those things that on the back is like the Italian family from Sicily in the year 1914 uh, gathered up all the bits of the breadsticks that they had been making in their family business, and they coated them with seasoning and put them into a bag and they sold them. I don't know if you guys have that sort of like deep history of snacks on the back of your packaging, but we really go for that kind of thing over here. One thing you mentioned the piece is having never read Bleak House. Um, and Oh yeah, I knew you were going to call me on that. God damn it. Yeah, shouldn't have put it in there. No, but, um, you know, saving it for the end of the world. That seems sensible yeah. as we approach the end of the world, potentially. Um, but yes. are there other books on that end of the world list? 
Oh my God, there are so many. Because again, this is this is part of the thing where if you don't have that university grounding, it's not just that you have gaps in your education. There are the just massive holes, uh, entire areas that, that you haven't. Um, let's see. So I, I haven't read Ulysses. I'm just sort of like looking at my... Um, I, well, let's see. We can look at his actual um, lectures on literature and I can tell you what I've read and what I haven't. It's so sad though. I mean, I'm... I think, though, that you should be upfront about it. Oh, yeah, because totally. Because we, we, we had that thing for a while where, you know, academics, like, never admitted that they hadn't read something. And so it got to the point where, like, you know, you have, like, Shakespearean scholars who haven't read Hamlet, but they've just never told anyone. It's that kind of thing. Um, well, let's see. What do we have here? I haven't read Madame Bovary. I haven't read Crime and Punishment. I have read Dead Souls. Now... This was interesting. Yeah, no, I talked about it in the Corona piece because I was reading the lectures and I was like, man, I should probably see what's going on with Dead Souls, right? And this is also a diagnostic. This and Ben Sinister, if you haven't um, read either one of those, also try Dead Souls. It will tell you whether you have coronavirus or not. That shit was unreal. I was like, okay, so he's, and I'm, I'm taking notes in my mind. I'm like, okay, so Chishikov. He's neither fat nor thin. That's the only thing I come away with in the novel. I'm like, he's buying souls. Not 100% sure how that works. He eats dinner a bunch. I can remember that part because I'm like, these are the different foods that he ate. Sometimes there's like a, a gruel made of oats, something like that. I can remember that. At one point, they go to a dance. That's about all I retain. Was there anything um, that you wished you'd gotten to write about in the piece that you didn't manage to get in? You know, there's always that kind of the darling that you have to kill. Yeah, I mean, I think that I would have liked to go into the lectures a little bit more because they were so surprising to me and because they uh, provided such illumination to what I was doing or what I attempt to do in these pieces. Um, I talk about it in the piece, you know, as there's this this German term, Eigengrau, which is, you know, like your interior gray, pretty much it's what you see when you close your eyes and you have this experience when you're reading along with these lectures of being inside his reading. And that is just an immense privilege when you think about not just what it must have been like to attend these lectures, but he shows you what it is like to read along with him, you know, and he, he provides these, these drawings. He draws Kitty's skating costume for, you know, the class. He like, he draws a picture of, um, for the Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, lecture, he draws a picture of like Dr. Jekyll's horse. And then right next to it, he's written horse because it's like a terrible looking horse. It's not very good. And then underneath, because I had coronavirus, I just wrote horse myself too, so that we could really underline the fact that it was a horse. Um, so I, I would have liked to go into that a little bit more. I mean, maybe I'll do an extended version in the future where I really go farther into some of those things. I also didn't go as much probably into his life because I feel like his biography is really a uh, common property at this point. It's very well known. Uh, we pretty much know the, the basic trajectory of this person's life. Um, so the interest in something like Think, Write, Speak is kind of just like going along with the biography and being like, oh, these are, you know, these sort of like fireside lectures that he delivered to this like emigre group, you know, in Berlin, like it's, it's very interesting to think about. So even if they don't always have intrinsic value, they have biographical value. 
Well, thank you so much for talking with me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I didn't get to say that at the beginning, but yes, thank you so much for having me for this. You can read Patricia's piece on Nabokov in the latest issue, which is online now, along with Thomas Meany on American Power, Deborah Friedel on Fox News, Barbara Newman on The Art of Dying in Medieval Literature, and a lot more. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.